Well, if you are new, just joining us, I've been doing this little spiel at the beginning of virtually every message all year long. We are doing this thing this year called the whole story. We are going through the entire story of the Bible. Um, we started it in February. We're gonna finish it in December. And so we've just been making our way through this uh, all year long. We broke up the whole story of scripture down into 14 different series. And today we are in our second week of series nine or 10. I think it's 10, I don't know. It's, we're, we're a good way through. And the important thing to know is not the number, it's where we're at in the story. We are at the moment where Jesus steps onto the stage in an undeniable way. Last week, we finally got to, to Jesus. And in reality, we've been talking about Jesus every single week because all of scripture points to Jesus. Like it's hinting at Jesus. It's giving us all these pictures of Jesus. But now we're actually at the moment when Jesus is there. And so we're calling this series, The New Human. We began with a series called The Human Project. And from the very get-go, the two main characters in the story of scripture are God and humanity. And God has grand plans for humanity. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to, to rule and, and use the authority that he gives us over this earth in a way that reflects him. But if you know the story up to this point, that hasn't really happened. Like humans haven't seemed to live up to their potential, but all of a sudden there's a new human and he's different. And that's putting it mildly. He is, he's different. He does things that no one's ever done before. He says things that no one's ever said before. And right away when he steps onto the scene, things begin to change. And that person is Jesus. And, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're gonna explore events from his life, but this isn't so much about what happened. I think we all, for the most part, know the story of Jesus, at least parts of the story. And if you don't know it, the gist of it is, you know, he's got a mom named Mary and, and she's a virgin. And one day an angel shows up and says, hey, great news, you're pregnant. She's like, excuse me. Um, and he explains how it's gonna work. He said, hey, look, this child within your womb, not a normal child, son of God, savior of, of mankind. And she's like, all right. And she goes along with faith and Jesus is born. And from the moment of his birth, there's resistance. There are forces out to stop him. And so he's basically born as an outlaw and he lives in obscurity for 30 years as a carpenter in a nowhere town in the Middle East called Nazareth. But at 30 years old, he steps onto the scene. He starts to teach. He starts to do things, creates more attention, more buzz than any human being has ever created in the history of the world. People pay attention to him. Very powerful people pay attention to him. They do not like what he says, they do not like what he does because he's a threat to them and to the way that they run things. And so they kill him, but that's the plan all along. What they don't understand is they literally play right into his plans because Jesus came not to, not to be worshiped initially, not to be revered, he came to die, to give his life as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sin. So he went to the cross willingly, he died a sacrifice on our behalf and then he rose from the dead Answering once and for all the question of, is, is this man really more than just a man? And then he, he appeared to his followers. He ascended to heaven. He sent us the Holy Spirit and started the movement of the church, which started over 2000 years ago and has not stopped and will never stop. And that's a movement that we're part of today. That is in a gist, the story of Jesus. But most of you, you know that story. Or even if you're new to church, you know parts of that story. We're not gonna so much focus simply on what happened over the next few weeks. What is not the question we're trying to answer, the question is who? Like who is Jesus really? As we said last week, every faith has a founder. And, and you, don't, you don't judge a faith based on its abuses. Every faith has been abused. You judge a faith based on its founder and no faith can claim to have a founder like Jesus. That's just true. 
There's something different about Jesus and we need to understand who he is. Jesus himself beckons us to do that. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And we still see that in our world today. A lot of people will, will take sort of a safe approach to Jesus. So I think Jesus is great. I think Jesus is a, a good teacher. I think Jesus was a, a good man and, and that's fine. The things that they were saying to Jesus, hey, they, they say you're a prophet. They say you might even be like Elijah, come back. Those were really good things. That's high praise, but that didn't satisfy Jesus. And not in some prideful way, it's just not who he is. And so Jesus puts the question to them, verse 15. He asks, but who do you say that I am? And I would, I would challenge all of us to recognize that that's a question that we have to answer. Like, who do we say Jesus is? And the more that we understand who he is, the more that we recognize who he is, all that does is make it all the more meaningful and powerful when we realize that he is a part of our lives. So we've got to know who we're dealing with when it comes to Jesus. And that is what we're exploring over the next several weeks. And we're looking at, at five factors. The first was last week. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the one. Like the one what? Oh, Jesus is the one that the prophecies of the Old Testament talked about all the time. Jesus is the one that, that Moses and all the prophets were talking about when they kept pointing to some future, when someone would come and someone would change things. Jesus is the one. Today, we're gonna look at this kind of odd statement. Jesus is the word. And then over the next few weeks, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so our hope is that at the end of these five weeks, whether you're here in person, you engage online and whatever, just like take all of these in. Because if you can have a more fully formed idea of who the God you worship really is, oh, that changes everything. And look, I've, I've been following Jesus since I was uh, 10 years old, 12 years old, something like that. And, you know, I've been a pastor for 17 years. In one way or another, I was a youth pastor. I've been in this role for 10 years. I spend most of my week, every single week, researching, reading, thinking, praying about Jesus. And you would think that, that after that amount of time, I'd be like, yeah, I've kind of got him figured out. Like, I, I, I think I fully understand who he really is. And I'm just telling you, I don't. I don't, like, we never will. He's that He's that good, he's that big, he's that important that you can live your entire life and think about him and focus on him and study him and experience him. And all it leaves you with ultimately is a desire for more. Amen. Sometimes I think that's why heaven lasts forever because that's how long it's gonna take to understand God. <laughs> like it just, it's never ending. There's always some new thing about him that I never noticed before, something that just makes me love him more. And so the more we look at Jesus and the more we understand him, the better it gets. It, it also just fuels a hunger to know him on an even deeper level. And so before we jump into the scripture that's gonna guide us this morning, I wanna just start by saying this. Jesus did things. It's kind of an understatement. Like Jesus did some things, some big things. In fact, John chapter six, verses one and two says that Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, and a huge crowd followed him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. When it says a huge crowd, you're thinking, well, how huge? Well, um, thousands, like literally thousands. 
Every time Jesus showed up somewhere, it was like a problem for the community because thousands of people would, would flood the streets looking for him. Jesus had to keep where he was staying a secret half the time just so it wouldn't be chaos. Thousands of people were following Jesus everywhere he went. As soon as someone caught wind that Jesus of Nazareth was in town, it was like this giant, huge thing. Thousands of people would, would literally just leave their jobs and whatever they were doing and go find Jesus and listen to Jesus and, and try to get face to face with Jesus. Why? Because he was doing things, unprecedented things. The Bible says he was doing miraculous things. Now, maybe you're skeptical about that or you know someone who is, and that makes sense, right? It's, it's normal to be skeptical about miracles to some degree. Maybe you've never experienced one or maybe you have and you can still be skeptical. I don't know, but, but here's what is non-negotiable. Here, here's something you don't have to be skeptical about at all. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. There is more evidence for the, the existence of Jesus in history than you have of just about anyone else in the ancient world. It's not even a question. No one questions that. And not only did Jesus exist, but Jesus changed the world. Jesus went from being this 30-year-old obscure carpenter from the middle of nowhere, no, no political power, no wealth, no earthly influence of any kind. And within a matter of months, he was the most famous person who has ever walked the face of the earth. It's interesting, if you know history, the era of Jesus's life is a pretty jam-packed era in terms of people of significance. In the century or so that surrounds Jesus, you have Cleopatra. Like that's a, we don't know many people's names from 2000 plus years ago, but you probably know that name. You've got Julius Caesar, you've got Mark Antony, you've got queens and emperors and generals and a carpenter. And it's the carpenter that ends up being the one that people by the millions gather to talk about, to think about. It's the carpenter that they decided to name time after. To say, you know what, from now on, we're gonna measure all of human history based on this. Did it happen before Jesus or did it happen after Jesus? And no matter what you think about Jesus in terms of, of his divinity and the miracles, that, that is an undeniable truth. There's something about Jesus that caught the attention of the entire world. And here we are 2000 years later and we can't stop looking back and we can't stop talking about what he did and what he said and who he is. And that's because he's someone special. That's undeniable. And what we're told in scripture is that thing that was causing such a buzz, that thing that elevated him to such a place of fame were ultimately the things he was doing, things no one had ever seen before, miraculous things. Many of you know the stories of, of Jesus's miracles. I love thinking about the miracles of Jesus because they're, they're amazing, they're, they're awesome. They're also like funny half the time. They're so interesting. For example, first miracle that Jesus performed. Some, somebody knows it. What's the first public miracle that Jesus did? Someone just shout it out. You can participate. Water into wine. Now who doesn't want a friend who can do that? Like, no, that story's amazing. Jesus is at a wedding and this, this family that's hosting the wedding runs out of wine and in their culture, that's, an, that's such an embarrassment. Like everyone would have been talking about that. It was such a, like a stain on their reputation. And so Jesus's mom pleads with them and says, son, you gotta do this. And he's like, mom, not right now. He literally says that to her. And she just looks at him and says, son. And he's like, all right, mom. Um, and so 
So he, he makes not just like a little bit of wine. Uh, if you actually measure it out, it's over 900 bottles worth of wine that Jesus makes. Like I said, who would not want to have a friend like Jesus, right? He's extravagant. And, and, and his first public miracle, it's not something that draws attention to him. It's not something like he did it secretly. In fact, most of his early miracles, he tells people, don't tell anyone that I did this because he's not out for the attention. He just wanted to bless this family that, that's having a wedding and not only did he make a lot of wine, he made good wine. Like the person in charge of the ceremony was like, this is the best wine I've ever had. Jesus healed people. Oh, the stories of his healing are, are the compassion in Jesus. There's a, a man who has leprosy that comes to Jesus and Jesus heals him, but he doesn't just heal him. He touches him. It, it was not lawful to touch a leper. It was against the law to touch a leper because if you touch a leper, you could get leprosy and, and that's how leprosy spread. And, and so this is a person that has not felt human contact for who knows how long. And Jesus had the power. We know that from other miracles where he just healed by word. He could have just said you're healed, but no, he reaches down and he touches this man because it's not just about his body, it's about his heart. You see a compassion in Jesus and it's amazing. The power of Jesus, it's just like the power doesn't even make sense. There's this Roman soldier who comes to Jesus. He has a servant who's sick and he says, Jesus, can you please heal my servant? And Jesus says, absolutely, take me to him. And the, the Roman soldier says, no, 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 you don't need to go in person. I, I know who you are, I understand your authority and your power, just say the word and he's healed. And Jesus says, wow, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And he says he's healed. And so Jesus does like a long distance miracle. Like who's ever heard of a long distance miracle? Jesus did that. He just said it and boom, way over there, it's, it's done. This is how powerful Jesus is. Jesus did unintentional miracles. Like have you ever just been walking around and been like, oops, miracle? Like, that's a strange thing to think about. Jesus did that. This one day, Jesus was walking in a crowd and this woman who had great faith, who had been suffering for over 12 years with a, a really debilitating disease, she is just trying to get to Jesus. It's crowded, she's in a street, she reaches out, she just touches, like the hem of his robe is what it says. She just touches his shirt. And Jesus stops and he's like, whoa, everybody stop. I felt it. I felt healing power leave me, who touched me? And all of his disciples are like, what are you, there's like, there's so many people here. What are you talking about? Everyone's touched. She's like, no, no, no. Someone touched me with faith. And, and he's like, who was it? Ah, oh, you, let's have a conversation. And she's not in trouble. Don't worry. She doesn't get in trouble. Um, but he didn't even mean to heal her. It wasn't like he stopped and he put his hands on her and he prayed and he focused and he concentrated and boom, that would have been amazing. But he's just walking along and someone touches him and it's like healed. That's an, he accidentally healed someone. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Like that is, that is power. I'm not saying it was an accident. Someone theologically is like, no, I'm, I get it. But like, no, you read the story. He, it wasn't what he was intending to do. At least not as far as we can tell. Like, who does that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. There's even miracles that Jesus does that are, are, are Jesus making something out of nothing. Essentially, like there's a, a crowd of 5,000 people. It's actually the only miracle other than his resurrection that's recorded in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's 5,000 plus people, they're hungry, they haven't eaten, they've been with Jesus for, for hours and hours and hours. And so Jesus takes a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread, and he multiplies it to feed over 5,000 people and there are leftovers. Jesus, when he does a miracle, you need to go boxes. Like that is who we're talking about. I mean, this guy, I'm telling you, there's no one like him. And it's like the, the miracles that he does, sometimes they're reminiscent of miracles in the Old Testament. Like there's a miracle of this woman in the Old Testament and Elijah the prophet basically multiplies oil so that she can continually keep making food. And, and that miracle feeds her family for a long time. Jesus didn't feed a family, he fed a city. 
No one's ever seen anything like that. So every time Jesus comes somewhere and he does something, his fame just begins to spread because no one's ever heard of anyone doing anything like this. It's not even like Jesus doing the things that Moses did. It's unprecedented, it's more, it's greater. And that's why his fame spreads so fast. How, like, how could he do that? We get to the book of John. And this is the core of what we're, we're talking about today. And John begins to explain for us how Jesus is able to do these things in a really interesting way. John 1, one through five, he says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. John, who was one of Jesus's 12 disciples, one of his inner three, the one that he was probably the closest with in terms of friendship. John decides to, to explain the power of Jesus to begin to help us come to terms with this in a really unique way. He calls Jesus the word. And right away, we should have sort of a, a signal that something big is being expressed here because he begins with the words in the beginning, the very same words that open up the story of the Bible, right? If you turn to Genesis one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So in the very beginning, God speaks and his word creates. Like he just speaks things into existence. Have you ever done that? I thought about, I thought of one example in my life where I can speak something into existence. It's kind of silly, but it just, it just illustrates how much bigger God is than all of us. So I have four kids. Many of you know that my two youngest boys, seven and five, and they're at that age where they still, they, they hate going to bed. I don't know if any of you have children that hate going to bed. Like bed is not the end of the day. It's the death of the day. Anyone have kids like that? And, and like, do, if you have kids like that, they act surprised every time it's bedtime. Like it's never happened before. Like it's an unprecedented event in history. Like, Hey, it's time for bed. They're like, what is that? you know, and, and you fight with them. And so it gets interesting for me, especially in the summertime, because like, I'll tell my, my boys, Hey, it's bedtime. And they'll go, but it's summer. And I'm like, yeah, well, you still have to go to bed in the summer. I usually, I extend their bedtime in the summer a little bit, you know, it's summer, let them, let them have fun, but there's still a bedtime and that just fries their brain. And then this last summer, my youngest, you know, he's starting to catch on to things. He was like, but it's, it's not dark out yet. And I was like, yes, in the summer, uh, son, you're, you're five, so track with me. The earth is, is rotating around the sun and we're on an axis that's on a slight tilt. And in our summer months, the Northern hemisphere tilts toward the sun, which extends our hours of daylight. And this is compounded by the archaic invention of daylight savings. And so now it doesn't get dark until like 10 PM. And he just looks at me like not tracking with that at all. Um, and so I'm like, no, listen, bedtime isn't when the sun goes down and he's confused. And I just sent him bedtime is whenever I say <laughs> bedtime is. You see, son, the, the, the sooner you realize this, the better I speak bedtime into existence. <laughs> I say it's bedtime, it is bedtime. If it's 4 p.m. and I say bedtime, it is bedtime, right? <laughs> it's my power trip moment. 
Bedtime happens when I say it happens. That is the only example I can think of in my life where I have the power to speak something into existence, kind of. And God can just say light and there's light. There's this creative power by the word of God that we see. But what John is saying is so much more layered. It's so much deeper than that. And listen, I don't know if you guys are willing to do this. I hope you are. I like to nerd out from time to time. That's what I call it. Like I like to, nerding out for me is like, I wanna deep dive into an idea for a few minutes. I wanna explore it from a lot of different angles and learn things I've never learned before and, and come out of that 10 or 15 minutes going like, I, I, I know things I didn't know and I'm smarter and I, I understand it better. Are you guys willing to, ner- to like nerd out for 10 minutes? Can we nerd out? Okay, so to understand what John is saying, you have to understand a lot of things going on because this metaphor, this, it's not even really a metaphor, this proclamation that he's making about who Jesus is, it is so loaded with meaning if you understand the Jewish and the Greek context. Like this is, again, you gotta nerd out for a minute. We're gonna look at, at like Greek words. We're gonna look at uh, Aramaic translations of the Old Testament. Like you gotta nerd out for a second on this, but it's so cool when it all comes together. Okay, so, so John, we know this. John he's writing his gospel to the Greek people. You have the Jewish people, you have the Greek speaking people. And if you've ever wondered why there's four accounts of Jesus's life, one of the reasons, there's many reasons. One of those is because the authors are writing to different audiences. So for example, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. How do we know that? Well, he begins with a a lineage, right? He begins with a genealogy. The, The Greek people don't care about the genealogy of Jesus. That means nothing to them. Those are not their ancestors. So John doesn't start there. Now to the Jewish people, that matters greatly. That connects to prophecy. Many times in the book of Matthew, Matthew says, and this happening fulfilled this prophecy. John never does that because the Greek people didn't care about those prophecies. John doesn't talk about Jesus as the Messiah in the same way that Matthew does because the Greek people weren't searching for a Messiah. They weren't living, waiting for a Messiah. That was the Jewish people. So when John writes his gospel, there's a different approach. And John says, in the beginning was the word. Now, again, some of you know this, and so I want you to shout it out. Does anyone know what the Greek word for word is? Yell it out if you know it. Logos, all right, there you go. Those are fellow Greek nerds. All right, I love it. So it's the word logos. That's where we get the word logic, like reason. Now, here's what's amazing. 500 years before Jesus, there's a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, and he's a very significant figure in in Greek history. Greek philosophy is a big deal. It's one of the things that shapes the way that the ancient world sees sees life. It's something that still influences the way that we think today. And Heraclitus had this idea. You know, the Greeks, they had their their Greek gods. Like they got Zeus, they've got, you know, all these gods. They didn't, like, they worshiped them. They went to the festivals. It was a lot of fun for them. But deep down inside, they knew there was something more. Why? The Bible says that God has written his law on the hearts of all men. There's something inside of us that just yearns to connect with something bigger than us. And it doesn't matter what society, what culture, when and where, there's always something that desires more. So Heraclitus writes about this idea called the Logos, 500 years before Jesus. And the Logos to him is is this, it's this mind. It's this undeniable intelligent force that has ordered the universe. He looked around at the world, he said, guys, look at how well everything runs. Like we like to focus on the moments when things don't run well, like it rains when it shouldn't have rained in our minds or something like that. But the world works like an insanely well-ordered fashion. I mean, you can set your watch to the minute of sunrise or sunset. We can predict with, with pinpoint accuracy, like 
the next time all the planets are going to align? 2,492. We won't be here to see that. Um, well, maybe we will. I don't know how it all works out. But the point is, you know, heaven on earth and all this, it's a whole, that's a whole different conversation. But, but we know that it's gonna happen in that year. Why? Because the universe just works that well. And Heraclitus said, man, this world is so perfectly ordered. It's not by happenstance. There has to be something bigger, some grand mind, some grand truth that ordered everything. And he went on to, to say that not only is that truth out there, but that truth is also in here because we're drawn to it. Because as all these different cultures, whether it was the Native Americans over here or the, the Chinese, and, and they were blocked off from the rest of the world while the Roman Empire is going on, every time borders were broken and new peoples were discovered, it wasn't like these people are like, oh, a concept of God? I have no idea about this. We just kind of live life. No, everyone's like, yes, we, we've constantly thought about what's bigger than us. We're drawn to it. And Heraclitus called that the logos. And by Jesus' time, this has taken root. It's taken hold where, where if you are a Greek person and, and you have any sense, you believe in the logos. You believe that yes, there is clearly some grand mind that's at work ordering everything. And, and John is saying, hey, Greek people, you've been talking about this logos, this mind, this intelligence that ordered everything in the world. And I want you to know something, that mind, that logos is Jesus. And he goes on to say in John 1, 14, he says that the word became human and made his home among us. So when John says the word, this has this powerful meaning to the Greek people, but not just the Greek people, the Jews. We're gonna nerd out for a few more minutes. Are you guys good? Or, okay, cool. So to the Jewish people, ooh, this gets really interesting. Number one, you have to understand their concept of a word. Like it's a little bit odd when it says the word was God and the word was with God. Like, well, which is it? How can you be God and be with God at the same time? And we can have a whole conversation now about the, the idea of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In fact, we'll record a podcast this week and put that up if you wanna listen to it. I don't wanna get into all of that. It's a cool thing to talk about. But, but if you think about it, we, we sort of have that understanding today. Like you might say to someone, I gave you my word. And in that sense, what we're saying is, is that word that I spoke, that promise that I made, it's deeply connected to me. Like I'm bound by it. It's me, but it's also something that exists apart from me. It's my, my word. My word is my bond. We still say things like the Jewish people, they had a whole different understanding of that. To them, a word was something that had in and of itself once spoken a life of its own. It had power, which is why the Jewish people care so much about blessings and curses. If you read the Old Testament, because they believe that, that words when spoken, they, they are connected. You cannot disconnect them from the person who spoke it, but at the same time, they are their own thing. They have their own power. They can create their own effects. So for example, uh, Genesis chapter 27, Jacob and Esau, brothers. We talked about them a long time ago if you were here earlier in the year. And Esau is the oldest, but Jacob tricks his blind father into giving him the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. And Esau finds out and he says to his father, well, what, just bless me, right? Genesis chapter 27. Uh, when Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too. But Isaac said, your brother was here and he tricked me. He's taken away your blessing. Like in our world, we'd just be like, ah, that blessing doesn't count. Here's your blessing. But Isaac, the way his mind works, the way this, this ancient Jewish mind works, no, 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 that blessing, it's already been spoken. Like there's no refunds, there's no returns on a blessing. There's no fine print. And so he tells, he tells Esau, I'm sorry, I, I gave your blessing to Jacob and it's already taken effect. Because I blessed him, he'll be blessed. They have this idea that a word, it has power. And I believe that's true. And I think we all know that that's true because I'm sure that someone said something to you a very long time ago. 
like a very long time ago. And maybe that person isn't part of your life at all. But that thing that they spoke, it has lived with you. It has informed you. For some people, it's haunted you. And you've wrestled with it for years and years and years. Now, maybe it's a beautiful thing. Someone said something amazing to you. Or maybe, I don't know, hypothetically, you're like a junior in high school and you've got a buddy that plays on the basketball team with you and you go into weigh-ins and you weigh less than your buddy and he's surprised and looks at you and says, huh, well, I guess muscle weighs more than fat. And maybe that sticks with you for 10, 15, 20 years. And you just ask yourself over and over again, am I fat? Hypothetical situation, but my point is that Sometimes just one comment can live with you for decades. We understand there's this power in a word. And so the Jewish people believed this, that when God spoke, yes, God said it, and you can't disconnect what he said from him, but what he spoke came out from him, and what he spoke had in and of itself its own power. And John says, hey, the word was God, and the word was with God. He's connecting this idea to Jesus and who Jesus is. By the time Jesus actually comes around, this phrase, the word of God, had become a very common phrase among the Jewish people. I'm almost done nerding out, I promise. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is a very ancient language, especially the Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in. Ancient language, very few words compared to our language today, only about 10,000 words. And that seems like a lot, but our language today has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words. And so by the time Jesus comes around, language has evolved and it's changed. And most people don't speak Hebrew anymore. Even the Jewish people, they spoke Greek, they spoke Aramaic. And so there was a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Uh, and then there was an Aramaic translation paraphrase of the Old Testament called the Targums. And by the time Jesus was around, the Targums were being read very often. And they used this phrase, word of God, all the time in a very interesting way. In fact, what they would do with the, the phrase, word of God, is they would substitute that phrase for God himself because they were so afraid of offending God and, and making God seem too casual, too personal, that they would replace God himself with the phrase, word of God, to create that distance. Okay, so check this out real quick. And I promise we're, we're almost done on the nerd stuff. Here we go. We get to uh, Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse three. It says, recognize today that the Lord your God is the one who will cross over ahead of you like a devouring fire to destroy them. This is intense, talking about the enemies of Israel. But the Targum version in Aramaic says this, know therefore today that the Lord your God, whose glorious Shekinah, which means glory, goeth before you, whose word is like a consuming fire, will destroy them and drive them out before you. Exodus 31, 13 says, tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. But the Targum version, the Aramaic version that the people of Jesus' day would have been reading and, and, and saying, said also speak thou with the sons of Israel saying, ye shall keep the day of my Sabbaths indeed for it is a sign between my word and you that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctify you. And so like, by the time Jesus is around, they're using this phrase, the word of God is a substitute for God. And, and here's John and he comes in and he's like coming in hot. He's like, guys, I, 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 know, I know all of you are looking for the same thing. 
He's like, Greeks, you're searching for this logos, this logic, this reason, this mind, this creative energy and force that, that orders the whole world and, and puts the whole world together. And I'm telling you, it's Jesus. And Jews, you've been searching your whole life for this Messiah, this word of God, this creative power of God. And, and I'm telling you who it is, it's Jesus. The word has become flesh. The reason that Jesus can do the things that he does, the reason that Jesus can perform the miracles he performs is because he is the word of God. He is God himself. That's the claim that John is making. And that's a, whew, like, that's a, that's a big claim. Because it's, it's more than just saying Jesus is divine. Like Jesus could be divine in the sense that he just showed up one day and like, boom, I'm here and I'm divine. Pew, pew, miracles. Like he could do that, okay? But no, no, no. No, John is saying Jesus goes all the way back. All the way to the very beginning. Before the beginning. Listen to how Paul puts it. And worship team, you can make your way out as we read through this. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Paul's doing his best impression of John here, trying to, to really communicate the same thing. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he's first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So, all right, we're done nerding out. You got, okay, Greek philosophy, Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, who, who cares? What does it matter? Well, it matters greatly for this reason. When we get together on Sundays and we worship and we sing or we hum or we just think, we are singing to and worshiping the pre-existent, preeminent word of God. The very power by which this entire universe was created, that's the claim that's being made, is Jesus Christ. You know, I, I joke that my, my speaking into existence power uh, is limited to bedtime for my children. Jesus' speaking into existence power is limited to nothing. So like in my house, by whatever just minor normal amount of authority I have, I can like say things and like, it's gonna happen because I say so. What can Jesus make happen because he says so if he is the word of God? So Jesus makes you promises. For example, maybe you're struggling with a hard season in life and Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That is a promise. He says, I will comfort you. I will comfort you. And that's not just some person saying that. That's just not some dude or, or even some prophet. That is, ooh, 
The person behind those words, the person behind that promise, the power behind that promise is the word of God. The very power by which this universe was created. And when he says something, oh, it's gonna happen. Jesus promises us, promises us that if we put our faith in him, even though we will die physically, we will never fully die. That we will have eternal life, we will have life beyond death. Like any human being makes you that promise, they're crazy. I can't promise that. Like even the craziest diets that we have in our culture today, like they don't even make those promises. They're like, you might live a few more years, you know? Um, just never eat good food again and you can get a few extra months out of it. Like, nah. But like, no, Jesus says you will live even after you die. Like the only one who could, who could say that with a straight face, unless they were just absolutely nuts, would be the word of God, the, the one who, who speaks life into existence. Like the one who spoke light into existence, the one who spoke the universe into existence. He's the only one who could say something like that. And he said that to you, that if you put your trust in him, you will have a life that goes beyond this life. So you don't have to be afraid of death itself. That is a promise made by the word of God. And if he says it, it's gonna happen because he's the one that has that power. Jesus promises to be with us. He says, when two or more gather in my name, I will be with you. And he says that I will never leave you. I will never leave you. You will never be alone. You might feel alone. You might think you're alone, but you will never be alone if you have your faith in Jesus because he has said so and he is the word of God. And when the word of God speaks, things happen. And he's promised you, I am with you. He promised that he would send his spirit. He said, I will ask the father and the father will send an advocate, the Holy Spirit to come and join with you and be in you. Like why, why did the Holy Spirit come? Because Jesus asked, because Jesus said, because when the word of God speaks, what the word of God says happens. And the word of God said, send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit now lives among us. And that's what connects us together in such a unique way that we all come from different backgrounds. Um, even if you've grown up in church, we got a lot of interesting, we are like a really weird mixed family when it comes to churches. But it's awesome because we all have the Holy Spirit. The same spirit of God lives in us that, that Jesus promised. Why? Why do we have the Holy Spirit? Because he says so. Not because we earn it, not because we win it, not because we prove we're worthy. No, he just says so. And he gives it and it's yours. He's the word of God. He is, he is God himself there from the beginning. 